0: listening to the addiction files where we discuss evidence-based treatment clinical pearls and resources while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives we are the addiction doctors dr darlene peterson and paula cook Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited we have Dr. Anna Holtai joining us. She is an MRO and a board certified addiction medicine family medicine physician joining us to talk about urine drug testing. When we should be doing this, how do we interpret the results, and what do you do once you have the results? I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Holtai to introduce herself and then we'll get started.
1: Thanks Dr. Peterson. It's So nice to see you guys and be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. As Dr. Peterson was saying, my name is Dr. Anna Holtai. I am both addiction medicine and primary care medicine provider and certified at and presently working at the Salt Lake City VA. I've been there for about four years. Prior to that, I completed the addiction medicine fellowship at the University of Utah. Just wanting to put a plug in for them as well. Um, It was a fantastic experience, and working at the VA has been thus far as well. So again, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here.
2: We're so happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. Anna's very special person to us. We all did residency together, all three of us. And here we are all three of us in addiction medicine for good reason. And Anna was the first person to go through the University of Utah Addiction Medicine Fellowship. She set the standard really high. We're really grateful to have her come and talk to us about this very important topic of urine drug testing in clinical addiction medicine, because it has a lot of implications for care. It has a lot of implications for patients, folks who take care of patients who are on chronic opioid therapy often or other controlled substances often are not sure what to do with urine drug testing. And so we're really glad for you to come and clear up some muddy water.
1: Well, I hope I can be of some help. So tell so, us a
2: little bit more about, tell us about the appropriate use. Like when should we use urine drug testing and how?
1: I think that's a great place to start. So why do we do urine drug testing? The first and thing to mention, and honestly, probably the most important thing to mention during this entire conversation or discussion is that urine drug screens are not for the clinician, they're for the patient, and they are not to the patient. We are looking at urine drug testing as a tool in order to provide the best standard of care that we're able to provide in a clinic. Uh, We want to reduce risk. We want to provide the safest environment for the patient. In other words, we don't want to utilize punitive action when using urine urine drug testing in the clinics you know, they can be very helpful. They help to identify aberrant behaviors, diversion and misuse. They can be helpful as an objective tool to confirm ongoing abstinence for patients in recovery. They are utilized in different treatment modalities, such as contingency management for stimulant use disorders. So they do have a lot of utility in, in a clinical setting. Possible substances can contribute to any number of clinical pictures. This can also be very helpful in appropriateness for surgery or procedures. I see a lot of orthopedics or s- general surgeons utilizing urine drug testing for continine or nicotine testing to ensure for abstinence just to kind of promote the or optimize healing postoperatively. So that's something that we can as well discuss. Those, those would be the primary reasons that I would see or the, the highest utility for urine drug testing.
2: I love that. I mean, I just want to, you said that it's not for the clinician, but it's for the patient. I love that. That should be the title of this episode because we often, use urine drug testing and medicine to fire patients or to get rid of these bad patients, quotation marks, to kind of catch people out, right? So I love that you said it's really for the patient to guide treatment and for risk and harm reduction and fascinating approach. It's so awesome. Who do we drug test? I guess that's one of the questions, like who?
1: So who and when? So, you know, whenever you're prescribing any controlled substance, you want to be able to collect a urine at the baseline and at least every six months. Patients that are higher risk And what does high risk mean? Well, that's the clinician to assess, but ultimately patients that have a history of accidental or incidental overdoses, a history of substance use disorder, hazardous use of substances or poly substances that could potentially negative outcomes or medical sequelae from use of controlled substances. You also want to utilize it when you have some concern for aberrant behaviors. Substance abuse treatment programs use urine drug testing quite often, and they have very high utility in emergencies, patients, individuals presenting with neurological or cardiovascular system, uh, symptoms you know for example altermental status seizures acute coronary syndromes or uh, psychosis all of those you, you do need to consider the the possibility of potential substances contributing to how the to presentation um, urine drug testings aren't guaranteed to capture everything or they do have their utility they are often used in in these settings
0: and that's really good information it's really common I get this question because I get asked to do chart reviews frequently. And we get this question, what is the frequency that we should be doing urine drug testing? And I think that was a really good point that you brought up that it really should depend on patient presentation, and then patient stability. And then the ASAM has their paper on the urine drug testing. And I'm you're going to have to tell me the correct name, Paula, the appropriate
2: use of drug testing in clinical addiction medicine.
0: Yes, thank you. I, I mean, they're very clear that it needs to be patient-driven. If you have a very stable patient, you may drug test every few months, you may drug test every few weeks, but when somebody has had a change in behavior, a change in status, you may be doing your drug testing weekly. Both are appropriate. Sometimes it's really challenging sometimes as providers because you get this pushback from institutions or insurance providers that why, why patient X and patient Z, you're doing two different frequencies of Drug testing because it's like we well, have two different presentations, and that's what's really important is that exactly what the patient needs because you're using this as a tool. And the other thing that I think is really important is just when we're interpreting these results, it's just also important the language that we use and that culture we create around that is so important when we're interpreting these results that we are using terms like positive and negative, not dirty, our patients aren't dirty or bad. It's just the result positive or negative or expected or unexpected result.
1: I could not agree with you more when we're having conversation in the clinic and we talk about, you know, and I will always I will often ask or the open you know, ask an open ended question, like, for example, is there anything that you wanted to talk to me today in the clinic before submitting the urine, We, we have time, let's make the time to talk about it. If you have any concerns, even when patients are communicating to you in regards to their urine drug testing, I say, the urine's not dirty, man. It's I didn't pick it up off the floor. It's it's your urine and we're testing it and we're just going to test it to see because we want to keep you as safe as possible. And, the, and this is part of it. And some of the most powerful conversations that I've had in the clinic are based on urine drug test results. They are sometimes the most powerful opportunities for you to develop therapeutic rapport and have conversations about. About drug test results and have a very matter of fact conversation, hear the patient hear their concerns, it can empower me as a provider at the VA to provide more access to care. No, we're not going to stop your medications, we're not going to stop your suboxone. But hey, let's talk about the methamphetamine that was positive. Do you want to talk to somebody about this?
0: I, I love that you bring that up, because I think it's so important that again, it's a tool. This is just another tool in our toolbox of the many things that we use to evaluate our patient, you know, along with just evaluating their mental state, their physical state. And this is just another tool that we use when we see our patients for follow-up and evaluate how are they doing in their treatment. And this result, all it's telling me is, do we need to talk about a change in your treatment plan, not a withdrawal of your care? And I think that is the message that we it needs to be loud and clear to our patients, that re, what, how they're doing and what we see in their results does not mean that we are going to withdraw care. from them. This just means, hey, is there been a return to use? And do we need to step up your care, not withdraw your care? And I think that's the change that needs to be done when we are evaluating urine drug testing. Because I know when we first started in treatment, it was constantly like what Paula said at the beginning is it was like you have a positive result, or you have an unexpected result in your test, then they're discharged from the clinic. We've all experienced that and seen that. And this is the culture that we have I think evolved in addiction treatment that we have been able to say, hey, this is something where we need to step up, support this person more. There's
2: also an element urine drug testing in terms of it being for the patient that patients want, and you have to ask them about this. But I, I we've all had folks who let us know that knowing that they're going to be either randomly or routinely drug tested helps them with their accountability. And I think that becomes an important part of treatment, is that it becomes a pride. because it's an objective measure of their treatment and their recovery process. And they can show up. And if they are managing to achieve their treatment goals, and that they are abstinence-based goals, that they can show up and they can take a home, a printed result and show it to their partner or their PO, or they know that they're going to show up to you and be accountable to you for that. Or they can show up and if the test is positive or, or unexpected results, that you're a safe space to discuss this, that you're not someone that's going to sit, you know, be shaming, stigmatizing, et cetera.
1: So I sometimes tell my patients, especially when they're new to the clinic, I don't, we don't fire patients. If you feel like you need to fire me, please have a chat with me. Let's try to navigate through this and make sure that we're doing everything we can and, and providing you the resources.
2: I love that. So what are the limitations of drug testing? Like that that's the other thing is drug testing is not everything. It's not everything in treatment and it certainly has its limitations. So can you tell us a little bit about
1: that? Absolutely. Um, significant limitations that we need to understand with urine drug testing is that it doesn't diagnose. It's not a diagnostic tool. Okay. So we're not going to diagnose addiction. We're not diagnosing dependence or And we're actually not even going to really be concerned for diversion. There's oftentimes other types, uh, other reasons for having negative results for prescribed medications. Don't prove diversion with with a urine drug test, but it does, does open up the possibility of you needing to further discuss safety and harm reduction with a patient. Don't know when the exposure time is the last dose or the dose that they're taking. It's unable to prove diversion. And that always do consider that positive results are not going to be in be able to inform you on exposure time, the dose that they used, and the frequency of their use. If it's in the urine, you uh, on confirmatory testing, the one thing that it's able to tell you is that at that moment, that substance was present in their urine. More than that, you know, you're going to be fairly limited with with urine drug testing.
2: Perfect. That's really, really helpful. Can we back it up actually and give us the primer, the urine drug testing 101. One, What kind of drug tests do we use? What's a point of care test? What happens when we send a test for confirmation? And when should we do that? Can you help us with that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. So a urine drug screen is an immunoassay. So it's a qualitative test. It is absolutely the most widely used test that we use in, in clinical settings. It's very, it's very rapid. It's the most inexpensive form of urine drug test one of the limitations is, is that it, there is an inability to distinguish between different compounds in the same class. In other words, it can tell you that, yep, this looks like a bird. This looks like a bird, but it's not going to tell you whether or not it's a goose or a duck or an, even outside of the bird family, but it kind of sort of looked like a bird in the bird family. So I know that's very elementary and, and I'm not trying to insult anyone, but the most important thing is, is with immunoassay testing, it's a qualitative test and you aren't able to distinguish different compounds in the same class. So I'm oftentimes being asked about false positives. And for example, amphetamines and we can t- uh, has a huge, huge list of potential false positives. It looks like it, but it's really not it. So when do you spend for confirmation? Well,
0: and then on that, sorry, like opiates, because like on our point of care testing, like opiates will be positive, but it's not going to tell you what opiate per se because you may be prescribing one opiate to a patient they may, and so they'll test positive for opiates yeah that is, it's not specifically what telling you what opiate that is
1: when you're talking about opiates you're talking about a non synthetic so some urine drug screen or immunoassay testing are only going to show you non synthetics for example the morphine the codeine and their metabolites uh hydromorphone hydrocodone you need to be very careful about what our immunoassay testing Testing you're utilizing, and you may need to add confirmatory testing for substances or opioids that you are prescribing that are synthetics that aren't going to be included in that immunoassay testing. What you need to also consider is when you are going to need more information. If you do have a result in your, your immunoassay that is positive, not expected given they're not prescribed that medication or based on the conversation that you had, you were not expecting that positive result in a, in the urine drug screen, then you're going to need to consider ordering confirmatory testing. Confirmatory testing is highly specific and sensitive takes longer to run because it's in an immunoassay testing or urine drug screen. If you do get a result that is unexpected and positive, then you may or want to consider ordering a confirmatory testing for the positive screen. A confirmatory test Testing is run by chromatography, which essentially for the audience, it's a quantitative test is going to be highly specific and sensitive. It does take longer to run the test prior to ordering confirmatory testing and getting that result. It's really not a positive test, right? Because again, we're not able to distinguish between different compounds in that same class with urine drug testing, qualitative positive testing until it's on confirmation. Because for example, amphetamines, there's a huge list of potential false positives and having a conversation and calling the patient and saying, you're, you know, you're positive for amphetamines. You know, do you mind if we we talk about this and the patient is anxious and concerned, and it's their trazodone that explains for the positive testing. So as clinicians, especially if you have good longitudinal care, I would highly recommend that you wait till you get the confirmatory testing before starting those conversations.
2: That's wonderful. And I love this analogy of we know it's a bird, we just don't know what species it is yet, or it could be something masculine rating as a bird. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. You I think did this it better than I
1: did, Paula. It <laughs> <But laughs> could
2: <thank> be <laughs> a dinosaur. It could be a dinosaur, which we really do need to talk about. <laughs> that is so, that's wonderful. Okay. So what you said, if I heard you right, is we use point of care testing to get this initial kind of class of drug to get immunoassay result. We send results off for confirmatory testing if it's a test that's unexpected. Or I mean, there are other reasons why we need confirmation, right? Like in your line of work, when you were working as an MRO, you never went on, off of immunoassay results. You always needed gas, spec, or mass spectrometry results. I think, right? When it comes down to people losing their jobs or when they're dealing with the court system,
1: oh, absolutely. You know, and in the clinical setting, when I'm urine, using urine drug screens, I may call up the patient and ask if there is there may be an explanation for the amphetamine, especially if they're not on many other medications or so. And you're wanting to open that conversation that to you have amphetamines in your urine that would not be correct. I'm not saying that you can't start talking to people about the results, but just be careful in the terminology and the verbiage that you're using until you get confirmatory testing because it can be very stressful for the patient.
2: I love that. Thanks for clarifying that. So what do we need to understand whether we do lots of kind of confirmatory testing, or if we rely on point of care testing in our practice, what what do we need to understand about general metabolism of common substances in order to be more competent and confident around the topic of urine drug testing, like metabolism of opioids or the metabolism, certain benzodiazepines, like what, what are some clinical pearls in this regard?
1: We did briefly talk about opioids versus opiates, right? Opioids is kind of this broad and. All encompassing umbrella, which includes all narcotics or mu mu agonist, right? Either partial or full. The difference between the opioid and the opiate, the opiate is a non-synthetic. This is where you're going to find your morphine and codeine. An opioid does come up positive and you're sending to confirmatory testing and the uh, metabolite, for example, if the individual is using heroin, the metabolite of six monoacetamorphine is going to come up positive. The one thing that's really important, Important to understand about six-monoacetylmorphine is again, it's a direct metabolite from heroin. It's got a very short half-life, about 30 minutes. If you do have it, probably will in, will indicate recent use, anywhere between the last six to eight hours, depending on how quickly the substance, the heroin, is going to be metabolized. The six-monoacetylmorphine will then metabolize to morphine. The morphine will be present for a longer period of time, and that and can accumulate if you do have chronic use of heroin, as well as you can have other impurities or in the heroin. For example, you can get codeine, get hydrocodone. The opioid confirmatory testing can show a lot of positive results depending on when they last used. Those will stick around for two to three days. Um, If you do see that in the urine and they haven't, they don't have a prescription to explain for that, that is something to consider. There's also sometimes a very benign explanation or another explanation why you have more Morphine and opiate testing, and that's poppy seeds. Um, And we don't always consider that, but if fairly low levels, typically less, typically just a couple thousand uh, nanograms per milliliter, it can be upwards of ten thousand nanograms per uh, milliliter. So if you have low levels, don't you know? We can't again, we can't jump to conclusions that we're using heroin or or illicit substances. Do need to also consider that it could be something as benign as a poppy, a a poppy seed bagel that they had. that morning.
2: That's interesting. I know that's always kind of seems like urban myth, but it's actually not. So thanks for clearing that up. Okay. I want to just clarify or ask you about something you just said. So heroin metabolizes to six, ma'am, right? Monoacetyl bean, um, very briefly. And then it goes to morphine and codeine. And then you said it also can metabolize to hydrocod- hydrocodone or is it hydrocodeine?
1: Well, you're also considering the metabolites, the the morphine. So you're ha- have the hydro, oh, excuse me, you're going to have the hydromorphone which is the metabolite of the morphine or the hydrocodone, which is the metabolite from the codeine? Okay. Is that, does that? Does that? I, I apologize if I if no, I no, said no. that wrong. No, no, I'm so, just yes. checking
2: that I have it right. So hydrom. So you basically could have morphine, codeine, hydromorphone, or hydrocodone positive with someone who's using any of those primary opioids like codeine or morphine or heroin, and you want to confirm which is kind of the parent drug, which is the original exactly. bird. Which bird do you? The have? original. Yes. <laughs> I love a- that
1: or a duck, yes.
2: Exactly, okay, thank you. Or a poppy seed. Right, that's, yeah, exactly. So that's really helpful. What about, I don't know if you wanna go into this at all, but do you wanna talk to us a little bit about the the tricky metabolism of common benzodiazepines? Because I know that gets a lot of folks in trouble, especially point-of-care testing for clonazepam and alprazolam, as opposed to point-of-care testing for lorazepam, which has a slightly different metabolism.
1: When you are prescribing benzodiazepines, the first thing I'm going to say is go ahead and just order benzodiazepine confirmation testing. You are correct. The metabolites of benzodiazepines, oftentimes they're from the chlorodiazepoxide or a Librium or the diazepam and the Valium. So many confirmatory testings will have primary or the parent drug and then those metabolites. Clonazepam and lorazepam are not always included in confirmatory testing. As a provider, the most important thing, is just know what you're ordering and make sure that you're informed as far in regards to what you're prescribing, making sure that it is included in confirmatory testing. If you are concerned about misuse or hazardous use of a substance, the sedative hypnotics or the benzodiazepines to add the clonazepam or and or the, the lorazepam, to the panel to make sure that it's 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 a comprehensive test.
2: Okay, perfect. Thank you. That's really helpful. What about point of care testing for things like methadone or Ambien? I'm using the brand name for Ambien, Zolpidem, Gabapentin. Can, you know, residents, medical students or other clinicians expect to find things like medications like those on a urine drug screen to a typical point of care test?
1: When I'm talking to the residents or I'm, I'm educating, I always ask them first to consider the clinical Clinical setting. What is the information that you're interested in gathering? Right. So if you're in an emergency room and an individual is coming in with altered mental status, a fairly good idea that opioids are somehow impacting or playing a role in this clinical setting, then you want to consider adding medications or substances that are not in the opioid com- in opioid confirmatory testing, such as Buprenorphine is commonly not found on there. Methadone is not. Uh, fentanyl, this is becoming more and more common. Add the fentanyl. There are even fentanyl stat tests now at this time. So you can order stat testing and then or- and then that have that go reflex to confirmatory testing. Other things that you want to consider is our kratom or if you are concerned about sedative hypnotics or the benzodiazepines, then again, be inclusive in what you are ordering and take a look at the clinical presentation. Ethanol can be quantified on urine drug screens. The test that I like to order for alcohol is ethyl glucuronide or ETG. It's the preferred test because it can be detected in urine for about two to five days after alcohol intake. It's an, another metabolite, ethyl sulfate. I've had some residents ask me about. This can be useful in detecting alcohol intake, though it's not used as frequently in point of care testing because even exposure through like hand sanitizers or mouthwash can cause a positive urine uh, urine drug screen. I would recommend that you're using ethyl uh, glucuronide. It's not perfect, but it's helpful. That would, be th- that would be one thing. Also nicotine, wanting to test people, individuals for nicotine and like, I was saying general surgery, general surgeons, anyone that's going to the OR that's probably a conversation that they've had with the specialist and they may be asking you to monitor and assist with nicotine replacement. The one thing that you're going to, the metabolite that you're going to order is called continine. Remember that if you are writing for nicotine replacement therapy and they're using it, it's going to come up positive in the continine test. Okay. So that needs to be considered prior to ordering the test. It can stick around for a while. People are using rather heavily. It can stick around for seven, you know, I've seven days I've seen upwards of 2 weeks so be patient you know prior to order the, ordering the testing hallucinogens Not typically found on or detectable on routine screens.
2: Can you also just the length of time people test positive for cannabis?
1: When I was working as an MRO, I have spoken to people that have been positive for THC for upwards of 90 days. It is highly lipophilic. It can stick around forever. It will stick around for a really long time. And also understand that if you are buying CBD oils, if you are buying topical creams, do remember that these are not federally regulated. The individual may be buying CBD oils or topicals and they're buying olive oil or they're buying a product that has a fairly high concentration of THC. Does that answer your question?
2: Absolutely. And by the way, we have an episode on kratom that people can refer to in in season one. And yes, I love that you say, look at the clinical presentation because there are gonna be, even above those substances which you mentioned, which I love that you mentioned methadone, Buprenorphine, kratom. I mean, there are multiple, and of course, fentanyl, which is so important. There are multiple synthetic opioids, benzodiazepines, stimulants now that we don't have assays for, right? They just don't even show up because we, we can't catch up fast enough to test them. We don't have tests for them, especially as their molecular structure is being tweaked just a tiny bit. In laboratories, we have to rely on our clinical acumen and our history taking. And if we work in an emergency department or in a hospital, or we work in toxicology, you become masters of this by looking at intoxication syndromes and withdrawal syndromes from patients who may not be able to give us a history and where urine drug testing is not very helpful. Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. But yeah, no, that's so helpful. Thank you so much for going over that. What do you want to talk about next? Should we talk about the big thing about false positives and like common false positives that get clinicians and get clinicians into trouble. They get their patients into trouble, but it really gets clinicians into trouble.
0: That is so true.
1: So I mean, the one thing for benzodiazepines, it considers sertraline, that's a false positive for benzodiazepines. The biggest uh, false positives are they're really going to be found in the amphetamines simple as for example, labetalol or metformin, bupropion, trazodone, they're oftentimes going to be positive. There's a lot of really good articles out there that do provide a fairly good comprehensive list. Um, it's a Mayo Clinic article. It was actually published in 2017. It's called the clinical interpretation of urine drug tests, what clinicians need to know about urine drug screens. And, and it really is, it's just a fantastic article and on Google, you can just Google it and it'll be right there. And that's got a fantastic list of medications and substances that can provide false positives on, in. In immunoassay testing,
2: that's a great reference. Thank you so much. I'm gonna, I'm actually bookmarking it right now, and I'm gonna uh, send a link out on Twitter for that article. That is great because there's just no way we can remember all of them, right? There's, there's multiple. I think you mentioned a lot of the common ones. That's a great article. The other reference that. Darlene already talked about that has some false positive kind of tips is the ASAM consensus document or the consultant statement that they published in 2017 as well called the appropriate use of drug testing and clinical addiction medicine. And that comes as a pamphlet and it also comes as a pocket guide. And so you can download the pocket guide and it's very easy to use and you can reference it very quickly. So that's really helpful for people as well. Um, I'm going to so be looking
1: that one up too. So thank you. <laughs> and I think
2: you can, I might be wrong, but I I know I've either ordered the pamphlets from ASAM before for minimal cost, or if you ever go to an addiction conference, they're always giving them away. Um, ASAM is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. So that's really helpful.
0: It's so important you brought this up, though, Anina, that we need to confirm. Like, I mean, that's the biggest thing when you're doing these point of care testing, even if you're like, okay, they do have this on their medication list, and this could be causing a false positive, but that's why we just send it out for confirmation before I make a major change in anybody's treatment plan that we decide, is this a cross reactivity that I'm seeing on my test or do we have something else going on? What else haven't we covered?
1: You guys want to talk a little bit about tampering?
0: Yes, we have not. What are you about thoughts that. on that? I don't know. Maybe I'm picking up on it more, probably more in the past. Two years, then I've probably seen it
1: tampering, meaning that the urine in some way has been tampered with. Right? There's there's two ways that that urine can be tampered with. It can either be completely substituted by either commonly another individual sample or synthetic urine, or it can be adulterated, meaning that you have an addition of a substance. Another good way, and I wouldn't necessarily it's it falls under tampering, but I really would dilution. Right? So you have cutoffs for these substances in a quantitative and qualitative test, if you dilute the urine and you have a possibility or you increase the possibility of that cut of the substance that is in your urine, not coming up or not being detected because you've diluted your urine, or you can even add additives, bleach, eye drops, you know, at the VA had individuals where I've sat down with confirmatory testing and I've said, uh, Mr. Smith, there's positive methamphetamines in your urine. I, I really would like to have an opportunity to talk talk about that is, are you open to having that conversation? Is this, again, it was in the urine drug confirmatory testing, they quite that medically, but that's what we talk about. And I've had patients say, oh, that's not supposed to be there. And I'm like, well, why isn't it supposed to be there? Because I borrowed, I took some urine from a friend of mine and they told me that there wasn't going to be anything in their urine. And so and it just is like, okay, so let's talk about why you're taking other people's urine and submitting it for urine drug testing. And so how do you get clues for urine substitution? So you look at sample temperature, the temperature of the urine and make sure that it's at an appropriate temperature that is consistent with a human urine, urine, urine creatinine. So there's cutoffs for low urine creatinine and high urine creatinine, as well as specific gravity. Then the direct addition of a substance, it's basically the concentration of the parent drug and metabolite. So you're going to look at that. And a really good example with, for that is buprenorphine buprenorphine, you're going to order confirmatory testing. Once I had a a confirmatory testing where the buprenorphine levels were incredibly high, but there was no metabolite in confirmatory testing. And then the Loxone levels were very high. For the audience that doesn't prescribe buprenorphine, buprenorphine is typically fairly quickly metabolized to uh, to buprenorphine and buprenorphine glucuronide And so, when you're ordering that quant, when you're ordering the confirmatory testing, you're going to have those metabolites in the urine, right? Because we're metabolizing or breaking down the the medication and the naloxone isn't even absorbed. When you're doing confirmatory testing, that's what you're going to be expecting. So, when I spoke to the patient, he's like, well, self directed care. I used more of my buprenorphine than I was prescribed. I ran out early and I was a little, you know, I was able to get a little bit of it and I switched it in the urine. The certifying scientist, they're sometimes really hard to get a hold of. Who is a certifying scientist? The certifying scientist is the the scientist or the individual who is in charge of a lab. Okay. So typically when you call the certifying scientist and you ask to speak to them, these are folks that look at P results all day, every day. They look at and if you do have a question regarding specific, you know, potential adulterants or substitution, give them a call. They are great to talk to and they're usually very informative. Those are also great resources for you, especially for folks that are working in more rural environments or they don't have a lot of support.
2: That's such good advice. They're really helpful, even the technicians in the labs on which tests to order to. Because <laughs> sometimes yeah. you pull up a menu of confirmatory tests and there's like 50 confirmatory test options. So they can be really helpful for that. It's a great resource. Yeah. Thank you so much. I have a little story to tell about urine drug testing that goes against kind of the Bible of urine drug testing, because we know that out of most urine drug testing, the one substance that rarely shows up as a false positive, that if you see it, even in a point of care test, you pretty much know the patient has used this substance is cocaine. If someone has a positive cocaine on their urine, we can pretty much be assured that they somehow have ingested cocaine in some one form or the other. She was seeing me for opioid use disorder and we were doing routine random urine drug testing as part of her treatment. And she was consistently testing positive for cocaine in her urine. And she was just adamant that she was not using cocaine. And so we talked about it just, you know, we kept talking about it. And she told me the story she was experiencing homelessness but was temporarily housed in a hotel with a roommate who was smoking crack all night. And she said her roommate really was ingesting, like really inhaling a lot of crack cocaine all night, pretty much just lighting up. And she was sleeping in the same room as her. and It was a small motel room. And she was like, I promise you this, I'm not using myself. And I was really skeptical because that story, right? Uh, So we sent her urine for confirmatory testing, and it came back positive for cocaine came back at a fairly low level, actually just thought, well, I mean, I'm not going to change treatment anyway, whether or not she trusts me to do whatever I will with that information. I just want to continue to engage her in treatment. She did really well. Eventually, she moved out, she continued to test positive for cocaine on urine drug testing. Finally, she was able to move out of this hotel, the very next test was negative for cocaine. And, she, and I was like, wow, it's negative this time, but it's only as expected for buprenorphine She said, I told you, I never use crack. I just was sleeping so close to this person she was using all night. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. It was a good lesson for me because I think sometimes we're just programmed to not listen to certain stories. You know, we hear like, oh, someone put meth in my coffee. Some, someone was smoking next to me. I must have gotten, I could see Darlene laughing because we hear that all the time. Someone must have slipped me some. And we hear those stories. And that's fine. I mean, it doesn't matter anyway, because we, I feel that it's unfortunate that our pay- that our folks need to tell us the story. Hopefully we, we respond neutrally and with curiosity, but
0: that's probably the first <laughs> hot boxing cocaine story I've heard.
2: <laughs> Poor woman. I mean, who wants to hot box crack? Well, thanks so much. Anna. is there anything else we've missed? Or is there any key points that you'd like to tell our listeners and hope that they really remember in terms of drug testing?
1: Again, it's a tool. Does this tool help the individual reach their goal? And clearly, it's not a perfect science. So thank you
2: thank you so much for for that. I think that's really important and helpful. And thank you so much for being on our podcast. This is great. We have wanted you to be on the podcast since day one, and we finally nabbed you. It took a couple of tries tonight. We had technical difficulties, but by golly, we got her.
1: It's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me.
0: Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.